pray together. Christ, be magnified. Lord, this is the cry of your people. This is the desire of your saints whom you have redeemed by your life and death and resurrection. It is our hope and our expectation that Christ will be magnified. Christ will be exalted. Christ will be adored. There's a day coming when every knee will bow before the glorious majesty of our King. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that day is coming, and yet, Lord, we desire that that would be the expression and the experience and the longing of your church even now. That knees would bow to your lordship and that tongues would confess you are king over all. And so our prayer this morning is Christ be magnified, be exalted, be made much of, be seen in us to be great, to be mighty, to be compassionate and merciful. Be magnified in us. We pray that Christ would be magnified in this broken world. as we see reminders of the fallenness in which we live, in the absence of real righteousness and justice, we pray that Christ's justice and righteousness would be exalted and longed for. We pray that Christ would be magnified in the aftermath of the verdict in the Sean Lucas case this past week. Human justice is such a a far cry, a mere echo, even at its best, of the justice and righteousness of Christ and his kingdom. And yet we confess, Lord, that often it seems far less even than that. We acknowledge that there are hurts, frustrations, fears, indignation, on the part of many in response to this case. And we know you see it. We know you're present. We know that your kingdom is not thwarted or frustrated. We know that your justice is not pushed back or diminished. And yet, Lord, we know that your heart 
bleeds with compassion for those who are oppressed. We pray that your people, your church, would be faithful and courageous and winsome in our witness to your kingdom and your justice in the light of this situation and in conversations that may unfold in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and on social media. We pray for the family of Jonathan Price and the loved ones who are grieving his loss and whose grief is now compounded by a sense of injustice, a sense that their voice didn't count. We pray that you would be magnified in comfort and peace and hope. We pray for Sean Lucas, the officer who was tried and acquitted. We pray for your grace, for your mercy, for your work in his life and those most closely affected by what happened. We pray that you would humble him, that you would bring truth and light and righteousness to bear on this situation. We pray that there would be righteousness pursued in the part of our uh, law enforcement, our police departments in, in this region and across our country. We're grateful for the important work that they do. And we know it is hard and dangerous. We pray that there would be lessons learned and growth that would come as a result we pray for peace, peace in our community, peace among those who are inclined toward further violence in response. We pray that you, Christ, the Prince of Peace, would bring your wholeness, your rest into our turmoil. And we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ, to be magnified in us as we aim, as we are charged to give faithful, courageous witness to your kingdom in the midst of the brokenness of this world and the fleeting nature of this kingdom. May our eyes be ever on Christ and the new creation that will come. And may we live as citizens of that kingdom even as we're temporarily citizens of this one. Christ be magnified in those among our congregation who are fearful of the future. So many different anxieties and worries and concerns can weigh on our hearts and crowd out our vision of you. 
We pray that you would bring clarity, a clear vision of you, your heart, your shepherding grace, so that fears might be replaced with trust, that anxieties might be replaced with peace, that Christ would be magnified as he ministers to his people in these ways. We pray that Christ will be magnified now in us as we turn to your word and as we seek to hear your voice from the scriptures. We pray you would grant us clear minds, that we might push distractions aside and give our full attention to the Holy Spirit as he speaks through the words of the Bible that you've inspired and handed down to us. Reveal yourself to us so that we might be changed, that we as a people might be more prepared and attuned to give glory to you, that Christ might be magnified in his church, we pray in his name and for his glory, amen. On the shores of Fish Lake in south-central Utah stands a grove of quaking aspen trees called Pando. More accurately, Pando is actually a single quaking aspen with some 40,000 trunks covering 108 acres of land. Each trunk contains identical genetic material and they all apparently share under the ground one root structure, making these trunks not 40,000 individual aspen trees, but one single living organism, the heaviest living organism on the planet, and probably one of the oldest. These towering trunks that look to the casual observer like individual aspen trees have withstood the elements and the passing of some thousands of years because of their deep interconnectedness to each other and because they all take their sustenance from the very same source. As Paul continues his description of life in the spirit-led community in Galatians chapter 6, we'll come to find that the interconnected life of Pando is a fitting analogy for the kind of community God is building among his people by the Spirit. We saw last week in the second half of chapter 5 that there is a sense in which Christians are obligated to obey the law, not as a means of gaining a righteous standing before God, but as a means of fulfilling the commands of Christ to his disciples to love your neighbor as yourself. Indeed, to love one another, he said, as I have loved you. So we don't carry out the law as an effort to get on God's good side. We obey his commands as an outward expression of our love for him and the love for others that he grows in our hearts. It's faith working through love, as Paul said in Galatians 5, 6. 
And that's why, as we observed last week, so much of the content of a Christian's obedience and so many of the characteristics of uh, the Christian life, those who are keeping in step with the Spirit, are centered on community. That is, Christians' mutual relationships with one another inside the church. So to restate something I said last week, the presence and influence of God's Spirit in a church is evident in the quality of love among that community. The Spirit shows himself in our midst by our love for one another. In Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5, Paul continues his description of life in the Spirit-led community with perhaps some even more pointed exhortations. So I'm going to read for you all five of these verses. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Then I'll give you the main idea as I see it, and we'll walk through the passage together. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Here's the main idea as I see it. There are three ways that Christians are to bear one another's burdens. Through mutual accountability, attentive compassion, and personal responsibility. We bear one another's burdens through mutual accountability, through attentive compassion, and through personal responsibility. Let's walk through those together. Mutual accountability is the idea that is summed up in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Brothers, we're reminded if you have an ESV Bible and perhaps some other translations, there's there's almost always a little footnote when it says brothers that says, or brothers and sisters. This is not only intended, of course, for male Christians. This is for the whole community. And so when he says brothers, he's including all of us. So brothers and sisters is a a fair way to, to think about that greeting. And this shows us that we're kind of in a new paragraph. This address sort of sections this off from what came before, although it's very clearly related and on the heels. In fact, uh, verse 26 of chapter 5, where he said, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so what we have in verses 1 through 5 is really a stark contrast to that work of the flesh, that provoking and envying that can go on in the life of a church when we're not keeping in step with his spirit. So the exhortation here is if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Please note, if anyone is caught in any transgression, this applies to anyone in the church. And it can cover any kind of sin in the life of the church. It's not reserved for only the biggies, the most sort of scandalous and headline-catching kinds of sins. And it's not only certain people that are Uh, that are subject to this kind of pursuit and accountability. If anyone is caught in any transgression, 
And that being caught is not a being exposed, like caught red-handed. It's being trapped. If someone is trapped in sin, trapped in transgression, uh, finding themselves in, the, in bondage to a particular sinful appetite or pattern or habit or pursuit, you who are spiritual should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, so you might hear you who are spiritual and think, well, I guess this isn't for me. He's just talking about the sort of special, super spiritual elite in our church. Or maybe this is just for the pastors. Maybe he's just telling church leaders that they should be going after people in their church who, who are sinning. That's not the case. Spirituality in this context, and really throughout the book of Galatians, is those who are led by the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit. And there's both an objective reality to that and an experiential component to that. So, for example, back in chapter 5, verse 25, when he said, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The objective side of that is we live by the Spirit. That is, since we are alive by the Spirit of God. That's reality. That's settled truth. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. You've been regenerated by Him. You are alive by the Spirit. The experiential component of that, the one that actually we have to follow through on, is let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There's a way to live that honors and pursues the things of the Spirit. And, of course, all of that was fleshed out in the paragraph we looked at last week in the second half of chapter 5. So when he says, you who are spiritual, he means Christians who are following the Spirit. Church members, plain, ordinary folk, who are walking by the Spirit, are given this charge. In other words, it's not just for the spiritual elite. It's not just for a certain class within the church or just for leaders. Every church member is called to pursue other brothers and sisters when they are trapped in sin. This is a part of your job description as a follower of Jesus. This is a simple, basic component of life as a Christian. When anyone is caught in any transgression, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And this means that we must be attentive to one another at the level of our sin struggles. This implies a knowledge of one another. This implies a relational context, a closeness where we're living in close enough proximity to recognize and understand when someone is caught in a pattern of sin. We need to know one another, and we are to care. We should be concerned about the spiritual well-being of our fellow believers. You probably remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 concerning logs and specks. You know, he talks about the hypocrite who is trying to get a speck out of his brother's eye while he's got a log sticking out of his own. And he says, first, take care of the log in your own eye, and then you can help your brother with the speck in his. Please note that the, the application of that passage is not, leave your brother alone, just worry about your own log. It's worry about your log first, and now that you can see clearly, you can help your brother with his speck. Jesus is interested in his people caring for one another at the level of our sin struggles. We should know one another. We should be even confessing to one another. That's another biblical command of the book of James. 
Confess your sins to one another. And we should be caring for each other, desiring spiritual well-being on the part of our brothers and sisters. So, anyone, any faithful follower of Jesus Christ ought to be in community with brothers and sisters at a level of seeing and recognizing sin struggles in the lives of our fellow believers, and we ought to be pursuing people in those sin struggles. But we could go astray here in a few ways. If you only take that much, oh look, he wants me to be paying attention to sin in other people's lives and to go after them, we could go astray in all kinds of ways if that's all we hear. We could go astray by being aggressive in our pursuit, by being critical in our pursuit of someone and their sin. Look at what you're doing. Do you have any idea how much damage you're causing? How could you possibly do this, think that, say that? By being punitive in our pursuit. If our desire is somehow to see justice done, you know, for somebody to get what they deserve, look at the way he's sinning, that's going to come back to bite him, and I'm going to maybe make sure that it does. There's all kinds of ways that we could err here. So just being aware of sin struggles in our brothers' and sisters' lives is not enough, because that awareness could lead us, if we're not in step with the Spirit, to actually cause more damage and to destroy the community rather than build it up. So our goal is not to punish or to criticize or belittle the one who is not spiritual, that is one who is living by the flesh, carrying out those fleshly desires that we talked about last week, would more likely see his brother's stumbling as an opportunity for himself. Perhaps to feel better about himself because, well, thank God I'm not like other men. I'm so glad I don't struggle like that. Wow. Or maybe to spread juicy gossip in order to peer in the know. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe? And maybe you veil it in like a prayer request. I just think we should pray for Pastor so-and-so because he said this really horrible thing and I don't know if he knows how many people he hurt by that. Maybe even to publicly criticize the erring brother in an effort to gain some social capital or standing among the church community. Perhaps we think if we put somebody else down, well, you can look at the sin in his life. Come on. I, I, I would be better fit for this role or this position. We might even seek a leg up on people when we see their sin struggles. All of these would be works of the flesh, not fruit of the spirit. That's not how you who are spiritual are, in, are to go about a pursuit of a brother or sister trapped in sin. John Owen, the, the famous Puritan, has a great little book called The Duties of Christian Fellowship. And he says, do you see your brother fail? Pity him. And that just means have compassion for him. Does he continue in it? Earnestly pray for him. Warn him. If you are angry, annoyed, rejoicing, estranged from him, <clears throat> you are a partner with him in the evil instead of helping him. There's definitely ways to go astray here and to handle our knowledge of a brother and his sin struggle in a way that does not honor Christ, that does not help our brother, and that actually destroys and undermines biblical community rather than building it up. So what are we to do? When we've lived in close enough proximity to a brother or sister to recognize a sin struggle, 
either because they've confessed it to us or because we've just seen it and observed it happening. We are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. To restore him implies at least helping him out of sin's stranglehold. Coming alongside with encouragement, with prayer, perhaps even uh, identification. Hey, I have struggled in this same way. Let me share with you some things, some things that have helped me. There should be a lot of that going on in the church on a regular basis as we come to know one another's weaknesses and temptations and sin patterns. Hey, I've struggled in the same way. Let's do this together. I think it also implies a building him up in love so that he becomes, in the words of Frank Thielman, a fully functioning, useful member of the community once again. We don't want to see anybody sidelined by struggles with sin. We want to see people restored and useful to the Spirit of God for his kingdom within the church. So we build people up and restore them. We don't judge them. We don't criticize them. We don't put a scarlet letter on them and say, this person is marked, can never serve in such and such a capacity. That's not what this is about. Our heart should be to restore the one who is trapped in sin. And he even gives us a manner in which we ought to do this. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. We're not after him to shame him, to insult him, to belittle him. We're after him for his good. And the brother or sister that you are pursuing should probably be able to tell that your heart for him or her is good, that your heart is for their blessing and for their flourishing and not for their shaming. He also calls to do this with humility. He doesn't use that word, but that's what's expressed in the, the second sentence of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, humility says, I'm not better than you, just because you have this particular sin struggle. I'm not immune to temptation. I aim to help you in your struggle, not because I am superior to you, but because I love you and I desire your spiritual good. There is a humility that we must have as we approach one another about sin that recognizes we all are in the same boat. We all have feet of clay. We all are bearing the divine image, but it's been marred and, and covered over by layers of sin and flesh. I'm not better than you because you're struggling in a way that maybe I'm not struggling right now. We are to help one another in gentleness and humility. If you've spent more than five minutes around Crosspoint, you've seen in really big letters on the wall in the building across the way that the church is an accountable people. This is sort of the umbrella statement of our membership covenant. We're an accountable people. That means we pay attention to one another. We recognize sin struggles in fellow members and we call them out, not for their shaming, but for their good and their growth. So when you become a member of Crosspoint Fellowship, you are actually signing up for that. You are saying, as a member of this church, I will pursue my fellow members, my fellow brothers and sisters in relation to 
sin and righteousness. I am aiming to help other people grow in their walk with Christ. And you are saying to the rest of the church, I am making myself available for that same pursuit. I welcome your pursuit of me in my sin struggles and in my pursuit of Christ. This is what it means to belong to the church. And it's not just the pastors pursuing members. It's everybody. Nobody is above this accountability. We're accountable people. We're accountable leaders. Every member of our church is accountable to one another in every direction. And so in order to be an accountable people, we must pay attention to one another. We must know one another and be known by others. And we must have the gentleness and humility and courage to step into uncomfortable situations and conversations. It's not always pleasant to be approached about a sin struggle. But it's necessary. It's for our good. It's for our growth. It's for the purity of the people of God and our witness for Christ in this world. And we don't agree to this because we think we're superior. We agree to all this because we think we need help. In the words of one of my favorite Rich Mullins songs, it's hard to be like Jesus. We need one another. We need other eyes on our lives. We need people with the courage and the permission to speak into our lives, to call things out, to challenge, to encourage, to exhort. And we ought to be pursuing that in one another's lives as well. <clears throat> now, of course, there's a balance to strike here. Tim Keller says we need to be neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. Right? If we were after other people in the church for every single little misstep, boy, that'd be exhausting. It'd be exhausting to pursue people at that level, and it'd be exhausting to be pursued at that level. I can't say anything. I can't misstep at all without people breathing down my neck about it. There's a, there's a, a line. There's, there, love covers over a multitude of sins, we're told. So there's definitely room for patience and room for understanding and room for just quick, simple forgiveness. I'm just going to let that go. That's not a big deal. And sometimes knowing the difference and discerning the situation will require following the Holy Spirit's guidance. Perhaps that's part of what it means to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. It's to be able to discern when is the moment that requires that I should say something, that I should pursue this, that I should invite a conversation with my brother or sister. But make no mistake, in a Spirit-led church, we are all our brother's keeper. That's what this means. So one of the ways that we bear one another's burdens is through mutual accountability, taking responsibility for one another. I often use the language of stewarding each other's discipleship. That's part of what we're doing here. It's really a way to think about the mutual, the shared life of a church. We are stewarding one another's discipleship. I want to make sure that you are provided with all the resources and opportunities that you need. I want to make sure that you are welcomed and encouraged along and that we're spending time together in a way that would that would exhort you and encourage you and build you up spiritually. This is what we should be about. 
The second way we bear one another's burdens is through attentive compassion. Attentive compassion. In verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I think that that phrase, bear one another's burdens, is broader than just dealing with sin. That's certainly one explicit example that Paul has given us here in verse 1. That we should be aware of sin in one another's lives and restoring, seeking to restore one another in gentleness. But bearing each other's burdens is a whole lot bigger and broader than just looking out for sin in one another's lives. Restoring those trapped in sin is only one way of bearing a a brother or sister's burdens. But the fact that it's more than that is proved, I think, by the very next phrase. When he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ... Well, what is that? What is the law of Christ? It's a unique phrase, but, and so it's not like a common way that the Bible speaks of, about following Jesus, the law of Christ. It's unique to Paul, and I think he only uses it in one other place, in 1 Corinthians. But it calls us back, our attention back to chapter 4, verse 14, <clears throat> where he told us to serve one another through love. In verse 14, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when he's speaking of the law in this context, he's speaking about a fulfilling of this love of neighbor command that Christ has given to his people. And it seems to mean something like the manner of life and love that Christ himself exhibited, expressed especially in in his compassionate love for his neighbors. So when he tells us that in bearing one another's burdens, we're fulfilling the law of Christ, I think he's telling us we are living in that love your neighbor as yourself umbrella command, and we're indeed following in the footsteps of our Lord himself, who more than any other person that's ever lived, loved his neighbors and had compassion for them. So bearing one another's burdens is living like Christ toward one another. So beyond the specific example of bearing one another, bearing uh, with one another in our struggle with sin, bearing each other's burdens entails a whole host of ways that we might come alongside fellow saints in their weakness and brokenness with help, hope, and strength. There are untold griefs and afflictions and infirmities and fears that our hearts are saddled with day after day in this fallen world while we wait for the kingdom to come. And in any of these ways, in all of these expressions of our brokenness and our finiteness, we have opportunities to draw near to one another in compassionate care and kindness, to be attentive, quote Tim Keller again. He says, you cannot help with a burden unless you come very close to the burdened person, standing virtually in their shoes and putting your own strength under the burden so its weight is distributed on both of you, lightening the load of the other. So in the same way, a Christian must listen and understand and physically, emotionally, spiritually take up some of the burden with the other person. Again, this implies known Knowing and being known. We've got to live close enough to one another 
that we're aware of what those burdens are and that we have some sense as we follow the wisdom of the Spirit to know what might ease the burden of my brother or sister in the Lord. So here's a few implications that I think will suffice. Number one, be close enough to notice when someone's carrying a heavy burden. Be close enough to notice. That, by the way, I think implies more than just Sunday mornings. It's pretty hard to know what burdens your brothers and sisters are carrying if you only ever see them during the hour and a half or two hours that we're together on a Sunday morning. It implies we're with one another on a regular basis. That doesn't mean all, every member of the church is always together, but there is a, an organic, informal, life-to-life, person-to-person care and knowledge that must be happening in order for us to bear one another's burdens in these ways. So be close enough to notice when someone's carrying a heavy burden. Number two, be compassionate enough to care and courageous enough to move toward them. You might be like, man, he's having a hard go of it. Hope that gets better, and on you go. Care. He calls us to love our neighbor. He calls us to not just be aware of what they're struggling with, but to care for them and to come alongside them. And sometimes it'll take courage to step into a situation like that. Maybe you haven't been specifically, personally invited into the situation. But nevertheless, if in our shared membership covenant we've all said, I am here for you and you are here for me and I'm welcoming it, you do have a place in the life of your fellow brother or sister. Now there's wisdom here. Don't find a stranger in the church, the newest person that you've never met before, and go start talking to him about some heavy burden. Here's the way that I can help you. Maybe that's not wise. There's wisdom and discernment along the way here. But be compassionate enough to care about the burdens that people are carrying and be courageous enough to move toward them following the Spirit's guidance. And then third, be vulnerable enough to admit your own struggle. It's easy to say, be aware of what other people are carrying and go look out how you can help them. It's a little bit closer to home when, it's, when you make it personal. Oh, I actually have to be willing for other people to know my burdens. I have to be willing not just to know, but to be known. And sometimes that's the hardest aspect of community, isn't it? Because that feels vulnerable. That takes trust. I am trusting somebody with my mind and heart. I'm trusting somebody with my fears or my needs or my worries, my hopes, maybe even my sins. Be vulnerable enough to admit your own struggle. We all need this. None of us is above it. John Owen, one more time, says, If we do not feel the weight of our brother's afflictions, burdens, and sorrows, then we deserve that our own should be doubled. Those who are not concerned in the troubles, sorrows, trials, wants, poverties, and persecutions of the saints, not even so as to pity their wounds, to feel their blows, to reflect, refresh their spirits, to help bear their burdens upon their own shoulders, can never assure themselves that they are united to the head of those saints. That's a hard word, but I think it's fair. If we are indwelt by the Spirit of God and we are called by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved his neighbor to his own great cost, then we will be propelled into the lives of one another in this kind of compassion. And so if you're not, 
if you're not paying any attention to the people around you, or you just don't care what kind of burdens they're carrying, or you just don't have the time to give any word of encouragement or comfort or help, I think it's worth questioning. Am I, do I really know the head of this body if I'm not willing to live and act as one of its members? I think that's a fair exhortation. So we bear one another's burdens through mutual accountability and through attentive compassion, just being aware of what's going on, the burdens that people are carrying, and caring enough and being courageous enough to move toward them. And then the final thing, the final way that we bear one another's burdens is through personal responsibility. That sounds a little bit funny. And in fact, I wrestled a good bit with these verses, verses 3 through 5, and trying to figure out exactly how they fit. So I'm going to show you how I I think it works, how how these all go together. I think there is personal responsibility on the part of each individual follower of Jesus within the church that actually contributes to the, the lightening of burdens, the lightening of the load that our fellow Christians are carrying. First, look at, uh, let me uh, look at verse 3. He says, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so we're called here to think of ourselves with sober judgment, with a, a realistic, as accurate as possible understanding of what our strengths are, where our weaknesses lie what we're prone toward, what temptations we're vulnerable to. We should be aware of those things and not think, I'm above this stuff, which harkens back to what he said in verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You are not above being tempted and falling into the very same sins that you're trying to bring somebody else out of. None of us is above that. And so the start of personal responsibility is recognizing, I am vulnerable I am subject to these kinds of weaknesses and temptations. Remember Jesus in John 15 said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he went on to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's not a very, you know, like uh, self-esteem boosting kind of statement. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing? Well, I think I can do some things, right? I'm pretty good at some stuff. Jesus has nothing that's worth anything. Nothing that builds the kingdom, nothing that actually lives the life of, of Christ through the Spirit. You can't do anything apart from being connected to the vine. So we just need to remember and start with, from this place of humility, of recognizing I am vulnerable to sin and temptation. I'm not above it, and as I come near one other people in the church, I need to be aware of that. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 one more time. Let me read these to you. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, at first glance, that sounds a little contradictory. Because we're in a paragraph whose central exhortation is bear one another's burdens. And then the last sentence in this paragraph is each one will have to carry his own load. And at first you're like, what, did you just change your mind mid-sentence? What, what is going on? What gives? I think what is in view here is the day of judgment. When he says each one will carry his own load, he is saying that each one of us will stand before God and give an account of himself or herself. And the boasting here 
is not so much a celebrating of our own virtue, look at all the great things I did, as much as an honest and accurate representation of our own discipleship in Christ. Remember, there's no tricking the judge in this case. You can't hide certain things and highlight other things. He sees it all. And there is a day, we're told throughout the scriptures, when each one of us will stand before God and give an account. Romans 14, verse 4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, Each of us will give an account of himself to God. So personal responsibility means we each recognize we will stand before the throne of God. We will give an account of our own life and stewardship of what was entrusted to us, which includes the community of faith. It includes the part that we played in bearing the burdens of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So this personal responsibility has to do with keeping our eye on the day of judgment and remembering, I don't give an account for anybody else, and nobody else gives an account for me. I will stand before God, and I will give an account of myself. Well, how does that mindset help bear the burdens of, of other Christians? And I can think of at least two ways. This mindset of recognizing judge, the day of judgment is coming, and I will give an account for myself. Number one, it doesn't blame other Christians for your failings. We might think, well, yeah, I sinned like that, but did you see what the other guy did first? Or in that context, how could I not have fallen in that way? Or did you hear the kind of preaching I was receiving on a weekly basis? That was such a mess. We were every, of course I was going to sin or stumble in that way. Like We can easily have this tendency to blame other people. Because it's too painful to regard our own sin and brokenness and weakness. But when we take personal responsibility for ourselves and we acknowledge, I will stand before God, I will give an account for my own life and discipleship and stewardship, I'm removing the burden from others of them bearing the blame for my sin and failings. Doing that... Blaming others would place a heavier load on the shoulders of your fellow Christians than is actually theirs to bear before the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody else can help you when it comes time to stand before the judge. You don't get to phone a friend. So that's the first way that, that I think it actually helps in bearing one of those burdens. It doesn't blame other Christians for our own failings. Number two, it doesn't burden other Christians with our judgments. If you take responsibility for your own load and you allow your fellow Christian room to do the same, preserving his or her freedom to be themselves, to make different choices, to hold their faith in somewhat distinct ways, you bear his burdens by refraining from adding the unnecessary weight of your judgment and criticism. Taking personal responsibility means I'm not so nitpicky about everything in your life and how you're carrying things that you now, in addition to your own discipleship to Christ, bear the burden of my judgment and my criticism. So taking responsibility for myself removes the burden from your shoulders of my judgment toward you. 
right? John Stott said, there is one burden that we cannot share, and that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack, and I cannot carry yours. So we actually bear one another's burdens by taking personal responsibility for our own discipleship. Now, that doesn't mean we don't welcome others into our discipleship. We've already made that clear and explicit. We, we, we help each other. We welcome each other. But we take responsibility for our failings and our successes, and we know that we'll stand before God and give account, not for our brother's life, but for our own. So we bear one another's burdens in the church through mutual accountability, through attentive compassion, and personal responsibility. And when we bear one another's burdens in these ways, we fulfill the law of Christ, which means in part that we're following in the steps of our Lord, who more than anyone else lived his life by this pattern. Christ took upon himself the burden of our humanity, leaving behind the glory and power of his station in heaven for the obscurity of a manger and the weakness of human flesh. Christ took upon himself the burden of obedience, perfectly fulfilling the law of God that we continually fail to uphold, offering to the Father a spotless record of human righteousness. Christ took upon himself the burden of our sin, and he carried it to the cross of Calvary, where he endured the wrath of the Father against our rebellion and satisfied the holy justice of a righteous God. And then Christ took upon himself the burden of our resurrection, securing in his resurrection from the dead the guarantee of our own in the day of his return. Christ has borne our burdens and carried them all the way home. And he calls us to do the same. If you're not yet a Christian, a word to you. You can't help anyone else carry their burdens until you've allowed Christ to carry yours. So let me simply invite you, come to him today in simple faith. Lay your burdens of sin and guilt at his feet and find the freedom of his easy yoke and his light burden. To the church, feeding from the same source of life in the spirit and bound together through our shared union with Christ, let's endeavor to embody his heart as we carry each other's burdens. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for the gift of this body, that we are members of this shared fellowship. And we confess that we need one another. And we confess that we don't always lean on each other in the ways that we should. And at times we're guilty of probably bearing with people in, in unhelpful ways. Lord, forgive us, be patient with us, and call us to a richer, deeper kind of spirit-led community, that our love for one another might be seen day by day by day in the ways that we pay attention to one another, the ways that we know and are known among the community, the ways that we come alongside each other in our struggles with sin and in our various griefs and sorrows and trials pointing one another toward the glory of heaven that's to come and holding one another up. May we live this out 
by your spirit at work among us for the glory of Christ, the building of his kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.